Uh, if you have your Bibles, while I'm getting settled here, you can turn to the 37th chapter of Psalms. Psalm 37. It's always a privilege for me to open God's Word with steadfast. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to be teaching through the entire psalm, but I think it would be edifying for us to read it. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. But better is a little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish and the enemies of the Lord will Be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I've been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he's gracious, and lends and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and will dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our morning. Father, we come to, before you this morning. We want to calm our hearts. We want to submit our hearts to your word. We want to bless your name for the gift of new mercy. Forgive us for all the ways that we fail and do not honor you. Forgive us for all the ways that we might be the wicked man and not the righteous. So as we look at your word this morning, as we look at this psalm of your servant David, be blessed, be honored, be glorified, and may it penetrate our hearts for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. It was on this day 21 years ago, between the hours of 4.45 and 6.45 a.m., 
Ziad Jarrah placed five telephone calls from his hotel room in Newark, New Jersey, to his home country of Lebanon. One call to France, one call to his girlfriend, Asil Sanguin, in Germany. In this brief call, he tells Sanguin that he loves her. Jarrah and three male companions check out at approximately 6.48 a.m. and head to Newark International Airport to board United Airlines Flight 93. 7.39 a.m., Saeed al-Ghamdi, Ahmed al-Nami, Ahmad al-Haznawi, and Ziad Jarrah check into the ticket counter for United Airlines Flight 93. The four men pass through the security checkpoint without incident. One of the four, Ahmad al-Haznawi, is selected for enhanced screening. As a precaution, his bag is held off the plane until he boards. 8.42 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93 takes off. 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 is the first plane to hit the Twin Towers, crashing into floors 93 through 99 of the North Tower. All on board and an unknown number in the building are killed on impact. 9.03 a.m., Millions watch as hijacked United Airlines Flight 175 crashes into floors 77 through 85 of the South Tower. All on board and an unknown number in the building are killed instantly. 9.28 a.m., hijackers wearing red bandanas around their foreheads break into the cockpit of Flight 93 as it flies over eastern Ohio. Flight 93 suddenly drops 685 feet in altitude. Cleveland Center hears the first of two radio transmissions from an unidentified aircraft. During the first broadcast, the captain or first officer declares mayday amid the sounds of physical struggle in the cockpit. The second radio transmission, 35 seconds later, indicates the flight is continuing. The captain or first officer is heard shouting, hey, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. 9.30 a.m. Shanksville, Pennsylvania is around the country. People tune into television coverage from New York City and watch as the World Trade, Center, World Trade Center's Twin Towers burn. Customers at Ida's grocery store and the post office agree that at a time like this, they're sure glad to be living in the safety of Shanksville. 9.32 a.m., an out-of-breath hijacker, probably Jerome, makes this announcement, which was heard and recorded by air traffic control. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the captain. Please sit down. Keep remaining sitting. We have a bomb on board, so sit Gerard then programmed the plane's autopilot to turn the aircraft around and head east. The cockpit voice recorder also captures the voice of a woman, most likely a flight attendant, who's held captive in the cockpit. 9.37 a.m., Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. 9.38 a.m., Mark Bingham, passenger on Flight 93, calls his mother from an airphone in row 25. He tells her that he's on Flight 93 and it's been hijacked. Bingham reports that the plane has been taken over by three guys who say they have a bomb. Passenger Jeremy Glick calls his wife from the airphone in row 27. He speaks first to his mother-in-law and then to his wife in a call which lasts 25 and a half minutes. Glick tells his family that the plane has been hijacked by three males with dark skin and bandanas. One of the males stated that he was in possession of a bomb and one was armed with a knife. He said that he and other passengers are contemplating rushing the hijackers. The passengers are voting on whether to storm the cockpit and retake control of the plane. 9.43 a.m., John DeLuca calls his father from an airphone in row 26, tells him that his flight has been hijacked, and says he loves him. 9.46 a.m., which is right about now, it's 9.47. Linda Grunland dials her sister from the airphone in row 26, leaves a message saying her flight has been hijacked, Apparently, they've flown a couple of planes into the World Trade Center already, and it looks like they're going to take this one down as well. Mostly, I just wanted to say, I love you, and I'm going to miss you. 9.48 a.m. Cece Lyles, a flight attendant, calls her husband from the airphone in row 32, leaves a recorded message saying the aircraft is hijacked. We're turned around, and I've heard that planes have been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again. 9.55 a.m., airphone operator Lisa Jefferson hears passenger Todd Beamer say, are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll. 9.57 a.m., passengers and crew begin their assault on Flight 93 terrorist hijackers. Flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw ends the call to her husband saying, 
Everyone's running up to first class. I've got to go. The cockpit voice recorder at 9.58 a.m. records a voice of an English-speaking male. In the cockpit, in the cockpit. 9.59 a.m. With the plane at 5,000 feet above sea level, two minutes of rapid full left and right control wheel inputs result in multiple 30-degree rolls to the left and right. The cockpit voice recorder captures sounds of loud thumps, crashes, shouts, breaking glasses and plates. An English-speaking male voice says, Stop him! Let's get them! 9.59 a.m. South Tower of the World Trade Center, struck by Flight 175, collapses. 10 a.m., Flight 93 makes steep climbs and dives. One of the hijackers asks, is that it? Shall we finish it off? A hijacker responds, no, not yet. When they all come, we finish it. Sounds of fighting continue outside the cockpit. Draw pitches the nose of the aircraft up and down. A man shouts, ah, another man says, I'm injured. Someone else shouts, in the cockpit. If we don't, we'll die. Another command is shouted in the distance, roll it. 10.01 a.m. Jarrah stops violent maneuvers and says, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. He then asks another hijacker in the cockpit, is that it? I mean, shall we pull it down? The other hijacker replies, put it in it and pull it down. 10.02. Passengers and crew members keep up their assault. A man shouts loudly, turn it up. Hijacker says, pull it down, pull it down. The plane nose down, begins a rapid descent. The control wheel is turned hard to the right. The airplane rolls onto its back. A hijacker begins shouting, Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. 10.03 a.m., a man is heard screaming, no. With sounds of passenger and crew fighting the terrorists, Flight 93 crashes into a field near that sleepy town of Stony Creek, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at 563 miles an hour, about 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. All on board are killed. 10.28 a.m., North Tower of the World Trade Center, the building struck by Flight 11, collapses. 4 some of you, the memories of 9-11 elicit... Emotions of sadness, grief. I don't know, maybe there are people in this room who know somebody who was there, was killed, know somebody who knows somebody who was killed. Uh, for some of you, maybe it's uh, indifference. Maybe you were too young, you don't remember, it's not that you don't care, but it just doesn't have that searing memory in your mind like it does for some of us. But for others, it might elicit emotions of anger, rage, Uh, at the evil that was perpetrated against our country. Almost 3,000 people were killed that day, including 343 firefighters, 71 law enforcement officers. So fast forward 21 years later, and here we are faced with the same question, how do we live in a sin-cursed world that's becoming increasingly more wicked? Well, Psalm 37 helps answer that question. Uh, Think of it as David's divine instruction manual. Most people agree that Psalm 37 was written toward the end of David's life. As we know, the life of David consisted of trials, failures, successes, uh, 10 years of wandering in the wilderness, running from his enemy. And so we get to the end of his life looking back over all that had accomplished through his Davidic dynasty. And these are the words he writes to us. So it's why I've titled my message this morning, Ordinary Instructions, Extraordinary Inheritance. Ordinary Instructions, Extraordinary Inheritance. Uh, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at. Uh, We'll see five instructions that teach us how to live wisely in a sin-cursed world. Pretty simple. Five instructions that teach us how to live wisely in a sin-cursed world. Uh, Psalm 37 is an acrostic psalm, but it's a peculiar acrostic psalm. An acrostic psalm is where every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But Psalm 37 has got a a few uh, uh, little idiosyncrasies with it where not every single one does. So it's a tricky psalm to kind of carve up. 
So I did my best. So if there's any Hebrew, I know there's seminary guys in here, some Hebrew scholars, like you're probably, you're looking, you've got your, uh, you've got your uh, halot, halot Hebrew lexicon out right now. Like this guy's a clown show. That's what you're going to be thinking as I, car- as I carve this thing up. Well, listen, I graduated in 2016. Uh, the longer you're out, you've got a little more, uh, a little more grace. Um, look at verses one and two. And, and here's the first instruction. Pretty simple. Don't worry. Don't worry. And originally I, I had titled that first instruction, don't worry, don't want. And I think that's okay too. Don't worry, don't want. Uh, verse one says, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why? For they'll wither quickly like the grass and they'll fade like the green herb. This word fret, as it's translated in the English, is a little bit, I think it's weak. Uh, Fret actually means to not let your anger burn, to not be angry, to not be indignant, to not be impassioned. So what David is telling us here is as we look look at the world around us, uh, he's telling us basically, chill out. Don't worry. Uh, Don't don't get worked up over what you see. And as I look across the room here, we've got, we've got college students, we've got business owners, we've got people that work for organizations that would not line up with us doctrinally. We've got people that play for organizations where things are happening that should not be happening. Every single one of us, when I say the word evildoer, you probably have at least one person that comes to mind. Maybe, maybe you have a couple of people that come to mind. I have one person that instantly comes to my mind. And God has been working me over from this passage about how I've been thinking about this one person. Because he says, stop it. Stop worrying about it. Stop fretting about it. I... I got on the FBI website. You can go to uh, FBI.gov and you can look at violent crimes that are being uh, uh, tried by the United States Justice Department. And I just was curious. You can search by category. Bank robberies. We all assume if you rob a bank, you're going to get caught. That's not true. Right now on the FBI website, there are 235 active investigations for bank robberies where people stole money from a bank, got in a getaway car, and got away, and they're being investigated for it. 235. That's pretty good odds, you know? Uh, Crimes against children. 947 federal crimes being investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office right now. 126 human trafficking crimes. 104 gang crimes. And to be investigated by the U.S. Justice Department, we're talking like serious crimes. This is not petty theft. This is major stuff. So my point in sharing that is just you, you look around. I mean, think, back, think about the last couple of years, what we saw in Los Angeles during the pandemic, the looting. Think about the number of videos you see on the news of people walking into Walgreens and CVS, loading up garbage bags, walking out, no recourse. I mean, I can't imagine what our law enforcement who work here in Los Angeles County, Burbank, Glendale, what they must feel and think when they're sitting in their police car watching a crime being committed and they can't do anything about it because our justice system has completely rewritten the laws. You know what David says? He says, don't worry. Don't fret over it. Stop worrying about it. But he, he doesn't just stop there. He actually says, not only are we not to fret, but he knows the sinfulness and wickedness of his own heart, as I kind of just you know, demonstrated in thinking, okay, 235 bank robberies? Like, you know, if I lost my day job, maybe there's opportunity you know, down the road. Like, there's something inside of the human heart that envies the wicked. Uh, I remember when Trisha and I first got married, we worked at a, a Lexus manufacturing plant. And I made steering wheels, she made shifter knobs. It was awesome. 
And if you have a Lexus, like an RX430, RX330, it's got the wooden steering wheel. I might have made that. Um, but I work next to a guy who went to prison for embezzlement. He embezzled about a million dollars from his company. And he, he was a Christian. He actually got saved. And the reason why he was working at this factory, it was a second job for him. He was trying to pay back the debt that he owed. And I remember him sharing with me, like, he was using the, the company money to, to charter private jets, bought fancy cars, fancy watches, was taking all of these trips. And his friends would always say to him, like, what are you doing? Where do you get all this money? Well, he was embezzling it. He was stealing it from the company that he worked for. And that's what David's addressing here. He's addressing the sinfulness of our own heart to look at the, the sin and wickedness of the evil world. And he says, actually, don't, don't envy that. Don't want that. Don't want, don't want what they're doing. And then he gives us a reason why. Look at verse 2. He says, For they will wither quickly like the grass, and they'll fade like the green herb. Uh, you don't have to go very far to see this illustrated. Drive over the grapevine in March, and you see the wildflowers up in the hills, the poppies. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Green grass everywhere. Drive over the grapevine right now. Two lanes are closed because it fried the freeway, and the freeway is like falling off into the abyss, and the hillside's burnt. Well, that's what David says. David says the evildoer, the wrongdoer, uh, the wicked, sin is fun for a season, but they're not going to last forever. The flower is going to fade. It's going to wither. It's going to die. And they're going to be like, like taking a, a, a seasoned shaker of oregano and shaking it in the air, and it's going to blow away. It's going to be gone. So first instruction for living wisely in a sin-cursed world, pretty simple. Don't worry. What I love about God's word, though, Isaiah 48 says there's one thing that will not fade or will not wither, and that's the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And you, you look at a passage like this. I, I mean, I have to be honest. I, I've come back to this passage multiple times, and you think to yourself, it's, it sounds so easy. Like, yeah, don't, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be envious. And so... So you look at that and you say, okay, well, then what am I supposed to do? And he tells us, instruction number two, verses three and four. Be faithful. Don't worry. Be faithful. Um, verse three says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You see, trust requires submitting to the will of God instead of giving in to self-pity and the anger, which is what fretting is, the wise trust in God. And so we ask ourselves, okay, what do we trust in? We trust in who he is, what he's done, what he promises to do. We trust in his sovereignty over all things. Trust in God is not, it's not arbitrary. It's not haphazard. It's not subjective, sort of nebulous out there. Like, we have very specific things that we can trust in. We can trust in his loving kindness. I just wrote a few things down. You guys, you guys could add to this list. We trust, trust in his loving kindness. Psalm 32.10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We trust in his deliverance. We can rejoice in him because we can trust in him. We trust in his blessings. Just take 10 seconds and do an inventory of the blessings you have in your life right now. We trust in his protection. We don't have to fear. We trust in his guidance. We trust that prosperity comes from him. We trust that he will exalt us on the day of judgment. And we trust that righteousness comes from him when we are obedient. Genesis 15, 6, we see that. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But here's our problem. Our problem is, is that we place our trust in the wrong things. And the first thing I put on my list was, man-made strongholds. And again, I have to go back to the pandemic. Like, I have to confess, I have a lot of toilet paper stuffed in multiple areas of my home. I even have scented toilet paper that's up in the attic. Uh, uh, Aldi. Aldi had some, uh, like, lavender-scented toilet paper. 
And I grabbed as much of it as I could. Uh, but I had to put it in the attic because it stunk. But just think about it for a minute. Like, think about, think about what we do when we fret and we worry and we have to try and protect ourselves. We fill our cabinets with rice and beans. We stuff toilet paper everywhere that we can. Like, we do all of these man-made strongholds in our life because we don't trust God. Now, is it okay to prep a little bit? Morgan, talk about it. Amen. Amen. Got to prep. You got to have stuff. You got to have cash buried in the yard, right? Right? Uh, Improper rulers and kings. I mean, just, again, think about the pandemic. How many people just took uh, the word of medical professionals about what they were supposed to do and not do? And now we fast forward a couple of years later, and we're realizing that some of the stuff that they told us was not necessarily what it was when we were in the middle of it. Our homes, our wealth, chariots, weapons, idols, our own heart, our own achievements, our beauty, our own way. And David, again, he's given us a really simple instruction. Don't worry, because the evildoer is not going to last. Instead, trust in the Lord. Dwell, do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. To the, in the mind of the, uh, the recipient of Psalm 37, we read that word, dwell in the land. And we think, okay, like, what, what's, what's David talking about? Do we just like, we get a, you know, it's like that country song, buy dirt. Like we go buy, we go buy a piece of land and just dwell in the land? Or like, what do we do with this? Well, for the Old Testament reader, dwell in the land had a deep meaning for them. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? God promised Abraham three things, land, descendants, and redemption through the Messiah. He told Abraham, I'm going to deliver these people out of Egypt, and I'm going to deliver them into the land of Canaan, and that's where they're going to settle. And it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But see, here's the issue with Canaan. Canaan wasn't just vacant property. Canaan had other kingdoms that were there, and they were not nice kingdoms. So taking the land also involved conquest, and it also involved learning how to live under the spotlight of these surrounding, these neighboring nations who prided themselves on child sacrifice, prostitution, idolatry, wickedness. Does it sound familiar? So what David's telling us today, I think it's okay to, to take you know, from the Old Testament and bring it into our situation today. David's saying, listen, to dwell in the land right now for us today is to be content right where God has us, to do good, obey his word, and cultivate faithfulness. So you ask, okay, what does it mean to cultivate faithfulness? Well, there's two, there's two positions on this from this passage, cultivate faithfulness. One is... Uh, feed on God's faithfulness. So you trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, feed on God's faithfulness. The other one, which some of your uh, versions say, befriend faithfulness. Make faithfulness your friend. I don't know which one it is, but I think both of them are probably okay. If we say, okay, we're going to feed on God's faithfulness, I think that carries a little bit of the theme of the first couple of verses where he's talking about uh, living, living in the lush pasture of God's faithfulness. When we're, when we're feeding on God's faithfulness, we're in the best place that we can be. But I also like the idea of cultivating faithfulness. It's, it's, the word actually means to pasture, pasture faithfulness. And you know, for you city folk, you have no idea what that means. You don't even know what a pasture is. But if you grew up in Dietrich, Idaho, or Idaho Falls, where's that cat from Idaho Falls? Is he here? No. You got... Huh? Where's he at? Are you from Idaho Falls? Were you here when we offended the Idaho Falls people last week? You know what a pasture is, right? Driving down the country road, there's cows out there. What are they doing? They're feeding on faithfulness, grazing on faithfulness, (laughs) right? You know, uh, interesting statistic, they feed more potatoes in the state of Idaho to cattle than they do human consumption. Did you know that? Yeah, Yeah, he knew that. He's just doing this. (laughs) He He didn't know that. He didn't know that. What David's saying here is make faithfulness your friend. 
Make faithfulness your companion. And all that is wrapped up in faithfulness is obedience to God's word. It's, it's fellowship. It's hard work. It's commitment. It's doing what God wants you to do. And that's why he says, just do good. Don't worry. Trust me and do good. Okay? What was the second instruction? Be faithful. That was it. Um, let's keep moving. This word, uh, delight. So he gives us the result of it. He says, trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. And then he says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Ladies, you'll like this. Delight, the word delight in the Hebrew actually can mean uh, to pamper yourself. Okay? To pamper yourself. So a, a nice pedicure every now and then. Going to the spa, getting a nice facial. It's okay, right? For the ladies. Dudes, if you guys are going in getting manicures, mani-pedi, like, just get out. Get out right, right now. Delighting yourself in God is pampering yourself in the things of the Lord. And I, I heard a, a helpful illustration. So if you were to ask my kids, uh, where's, where's my kids? Nora, what's my favorite ice cream? Let's go, gold medal ribbon, Baskin Robbins, okay? If my kids want to delight themselves in their father, they would go to gold medal ribbon, and they wouldn't get a pint. They'd get a half gallon. They'd go to a Baskin Robbins of gold medal ribbon, right? You guys know gold medal ribbon? It's chocolate swirled with caramel, and it's got everything in it. If they wanted to delight themselves in me as their father, they'd go to Baskin Robbins. Or they'd come to me and say, hey, Dad, can we get uh, ice cream tonight? We want to get Baskin Robbins. I would say, of course. I would, I would shower them with blessings. <laughs> now, if they come to me and they say, hey, dad, we want to go to Menchie's and get Froyo. <laughs> okay, first of all, <laughs> exactly. You guys know where I'm going with this. You don't make ice cream out of yogurt. Yogurt is like Chobani. You put blueberries in yogurt and you eat yogurt, okay? Same, same thing with coconuts and almonds and soybeans. You don't make ice cream out of coconuts. Coconuts are... I don't even know why God made coconuts. They're coconuts. And almond, like coconuts and almonds, maybe you make a, a almond joy. You don't make ice cream with that. You go, to the, you go to the dairy and you dip the top cream out of the milk tank. You dip that cream out and you put that in the ice cream thing and you churn that and then you put, you put extra chocolate and extra caramel, extra gluten, red dye 40, MSGs. You put it all in there. See, when you delight yourself in the Lord... You go to the Lord with all of the things that he would be blessed by. And then what he does is he pours out his blessing on you. And that's what David's saying here when he says, pamper yourself with the things of the Lord. Delight yourself in the things of the Lord. Don't bring vegan ice cream unless you want judgment. Delighting yourself in the Lord is doing what he loves, avoiding what he hates, bringing him our finest worship. And then when we do that, he pours out his lavish love on us, making our desires his desires. And that's what David is saying. Be faithful, trust God, do good, be content where he has you. And when you do that, he promises to make his desires or make your desires his desires. Okay, so we've seen first two instructions. Don't worry, verses 1 and 2. Be faithful, verses 3 and 4. And then uh, instruction number 3, verses 5 and 6. And I'm going to redeem this phrase, let go and let God. Let go and let God. It's biblical. And I'm going to redeem it this morning. Let go and let God does not belong to Joel Osteen. Uh, let go and let God is not a 17th century heresy rooted in mysticism that basically says we must you know, just sit back, quit striving for holiness, 
and that perfection comes in just being passive and, and sort of suppressing human effort so that divine action can take place. That's, what, that's what's rooted in let go and let God. I don't think that's right, though. I think let go and let God is rooted in verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. See, the word commit there in verse 5 carries with it the opposite idea. In fact, it's a word that means uh, to roll away a stone or uh, to roll away to God a need or a distress. And the only way I can think about this is drawing from memory as a kid. Uh, Growing up in a small little town, Dietrich, Idaho, population, 359 people. Uh, People come to Dietrich for two reasons. They come for the three-pound chicken fried steak at the Eagle's Nest, and they come for what's called the Dietrich Crater. You can look it up online. The Dietrich Crater. It's it's kind of interesting, because growing up, I was always told it was where a meteorite hit, because you can see kind of this trail. And we would, like, make jokes that our, you know, our eighth grade teacher crawled out of the rocks from the Dietrich Crater, because... He was just, he was weird. That's not what it was. The Dietrich Crater was formed by a collapsed volcanic cone. So there was a volcano, it collapsed. So it created these huge, like, cliffs. And we used to go up there when we were little kids, and we would roll boulders off of the side of the cliff. Anybody ever done this? Like, rolling boulders? So it's like, these are like massive boulders, right? And you're like a 300-foot cliff. And when I think of this word commit, the idea is, like, it takes three or four of you to get on that boulder and roll that thing over the edge. And once that thing is over the edge, you just sit back in awe. You're like, that's awesome. Because it's just crashing. You're hoping nobody's down there. <laughs> See, it's kind of what David is saying. It's not this idea of just sitting back and not doing anything. It's every single time we are fretting over the evildoer, every single time we get worried about something, David is saying, roll it off to God. Get under the boulder, roll it off to God. And that's what we're supposed to do. Because I just lost my place in my notes. Uh, oh yeah, we, we, let, we, let, we let go by rolling away. Uh, so what does God do when we commit our way to him and trust in him? It says in verse 6, it says, He will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our judgment as the noonday. So what does righteousness mean? Well, the Hebrew word for righteousness means a standard of right relationship. We were talking about this with some of the guys earlier this week. You know, in the Old Testament, you often see righteousness and justice together. Righteousness in the Old Testament is usually outward. It can mean equity, doing what's right, but it can also mean communal loyalty or conduct that's loyal to a community. It's not individual It's actually doing right by others. So what's David saying here? He's saying that when righteousness and justice are paired together, when we trust God, we work hard, we do what we're supposed to do, we will have right relationship with God, vertical, and we'll have right relationship with people, horizontal, in a way that's merciful, in a way that's restorative. And you see this in Genesis 18. If you turn turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18 real quick, we'll look just at an example of of where this is used in the life of Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 19. It says, For I have chosen him, referring to Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? Righteousness and justice for what? So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And those are the three promises I mentioned earlier. Land, blessings, as far as his, his uh, offspring and redemption. See, God didn't just use Abraham as a means of blessing to the children of Israel, but he would be the instrument of provision through the promise of the land, the instrument of human redemption. He was to be a man of righteousness and justice, and this was to be seen by all nations. So in Psalm 37, when David's talking about uh, why we commit our way to the Lord, why we trust in him, and, and he says, he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. God's going to expose it. He's going to expose it for our own edification, but he's also going to expose it for the people, of, people around us. So when I say let go and let God, I'm not talking about sitting back, taking it easy. I'm talking about putting our nose to the grindstone, 
committing everything to him, trusting him, and then watching him put our righteousness and our justice on display. And you see this in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, right? Uh, 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, do what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 13, it says, Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's the tension of the Christian life. We do everything that we can in God's power, trusting that he's going to work through us. So instruction one, don't worry. Instruction two, be faithful. Instruction three, let go and let God. And then the fourth instruction, I won't spend as much time on this one, but the fourth instruction found in verse seven is be quiet and wait. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. David's telling us to live with a silent expectation, not anxiety or frustrated desires. We stay faithful. We work hard where God has us. We wait for him to act. And I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can tell you that if you heed the wisdom of David in this psalm, you can have confidence that he will intervene. I was looking at statistics for um, anti-anxiety medication. And there's a company called Express Scripts. It's a pharmaceutical management company, and they produced this report, this report called America's State of the Mind. And they focused on the period, just a short period, between February, uh, February and April of 2020. Here's what, here's what they said. Anti-anxiety medications rose 34.1% during that time, with a week-over-week spike of nearly 18%. And 78% of all anti-anxiety and anti-insomnia prescriptions filled during that time were for new prescriptions. 78%. So what does that say? It says that we live in a world who is not willing to do what David is say, just be quiet and wait. We live in a world of escapism. We live in a world where we can't have 15 minutes uh, without being on these things without being stimulated by these things. I mean, I would just ask the question, when's the last time you had an hour of silence, just you and the Lord, undistracted time with God, where you were quiet and you were patiently waiting on him? Now, listen, I'm not a doctor, so I want to be careful not to cast judgment. There are real physiological issues and if that's something that God has given you to deal with, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. But here's what I will say. Before you seek after some secular uh, method of, of sort of trying to suppress the anxiety, suppress the fret, suppress the worry, just follow David's instructions. Don't worry. Be faithful. Let go, let God be quiet and be patient. Last year, 17% of college students were on some type of psychotropic drug. 8% of them anti-anxiety medication. There's about 20 million college students in the country. That's about 3.4 million college students taking some kind of behavioral drug to cope with the pressures of life. Let's keep moving here. Thankfully, the last instruction is pretty simple as well. Instruction number five, verses eight through 11. It's like, uh, it's like an Ikea manual. Uh, repeat instructions one through four. Instruction number five, repeat instructions one through four. And then I wrote this, receive the inheritance. Look at verse uh, eight. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. So see here what David's doing? He, he knows our heart, and he knows how forgetful we are. Already in seven verses, he knows, okay, these guys already forgot what I just said. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. And these are the same words. Anger, wrath, fretting. 
It leans only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So now you're faced with a situation where you read this verse and you're, you're saying, yeah, I got to stop worrying about the evildoer. And you get so worked up about it, you're actually now the evildoer. And that's what David is saying. Don't be guilty of the very thing that you've been so worked up about. And, you know, so when I said earlier, when I say evildoer, you can probably all picture somebody in your head. Let me just caution you that maybe the first place to start is looking in the mirror. Maybe the first place to start is asking ourselves, examining examining our own heart and saying, God, am I the evildoer? I've had all of these terrible thoughts about this person. I've had all of these assumptions about this person. And it's now... What it says here, it tends toward evil. Don't fret, it leads only to evil doing. And I think it's why the writer of Hebrews 12 says, he warns them, he says, don't let bitterness, don't let the root of bitterness spring up because it results in pride, animosity, jealousy, selfish ambition. And that's the manifestation of the evil that comes when we get worked up about the sin that's happening around us. But the amazing hope is that the meek, those who are dependent on the Lord, those who hope in him because of their limited resources and abilities, will inherit the land and delight in abundant peace. No turmoil, no suffering, no anxiety, only fulfilled promises because God always keeps his promises. And for us as a New Testament believer, we have the greatest eternal hope for truly dwelling in the land. And I'll prove it to you by looking at Revelation 21. So you, you, you know, I asked a couple of guys this week, like, what's the, what's the ultimate fulfillment of the land promise in Abraham? Is it the millennial kingdom? Is it heaven? Is it the eternal state? Is it the new heavens, the new earth? I, I mean, I think you could probably say it's probably all of those to some degree, but I think Revelation 21 is, is a great maybe way as we, as we, uh, uh, we kind of land the plane here. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And here you see glimpses of the Garden of Eden, of the temple, Jerusalem. He's pulling it all into this. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The greatest hope we have is knowing that we get to dwell for eternity with our Savior. And when he talks about the meek shall inherit the earth, you know, Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5. He's quoting Psalm 37. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. So these instructions are simple. Uh, they're, they're, they're not like Ikea, where you get to the end of the manual. First of all, who's that guy on the instructions? Like, is it a guy? Is it a girl? Like, what is that thing? Pointing at you, do this. You get to the end of the manual, and you either end up with extra parts, which sometimes you're like, Paulo, praise him, because you lost parts. Or you get to the end of the manual and you've got like an extra doorknob. And you're like, that guy in the factory, he threw an extra door handle in there just because he wanted me to like, you know, question my entire existence. That's not what this is. These are really clear instructions. And we get to the end of the manual and we get to reap the benefits of the inheritance. 
So you come to the end of your life, you receive the eternal inheritance, and it's the one that 1 Peter 1 says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So maybe you're here this morning and you're like me. Maybe you've let bitterness creep into your heart. Uh, maybe you read these instructions once and you forgot instruction five to go back and reread re- re- the first four. Let me encourage you to do that. Just, just repent. Get on your knees, have some quietness with God and repent and then read the instructions again. Pamper yourself with his love. Be faithful, work hard, trust God, wait quietly, commit everything to him. Uh, and maybe you're here this morning and you're the evildoer. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you've never read these instructions. And I wouldn't be loving if I didn't warn you, sin is fun for a season. You're having fun right now, living in your sin, being the evildoer, cheating people, lying people, stealing from your boss. I don't know. I don't know. But there will come a day when God's righteousness and justice that we learn from this passage are going to shine with a scorching heat that you will not be able to stand. So you can choose to trust God, repent of your sin, inherit the eternal inheritance, or forsake God, trust yourself, and disappear into eternal judgment. So I want to close where I began. September 11th, 2001, 9.55 a.m. The airphone operator from Flight 93, Lisa Jefferson, later testified that she'd been on the phone with Todd Beamer for approximately 15 minutes. During that time, he asked her to tell his wife and kids that he loved them, and he prayed the Lord's Prayer with her, and then Todd recited the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you're good, and we're grateful for your word. Uh, Forgive us for not following instructions. Help us to trust you. I pray for anybody here who is living a life of wickedness and they don't know you, that they would embrace your son, Jesus, that they would embrace the inheritance that is imperishable, that awaits for them in heaven. We love you, God. We thank you for this church. Pray for everybody here today and all of their situations. Help us to trust you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to wait on you. And give us the opportunity to sit back and watch you work. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.